guys, it's JM, and we had an awesome session at Ruth's Chris today, but I'm an idiot again, and something was off with the microphone, I don't know if one of the channels was, I don't know, I'm tech illiterate, and it stinks, uh, because I totally didn't get any of the audio from our session today. So, once again, we've got to redo it, because those of you following along on the video or the podcast, uh, you don't need to be lost for a chapter because of my incompetence. We, um, we pick back up. We're in Deuteronomy chapter 23, and this section is, again, to recap. Deuteronomy, the entire document is based around the form, the literary form, of an ancient Near East suzerainty covenant treaty. So Israel is the vassal, God is the suzerain, which is the ancient Near East king, and he, um, what would happen in these treaties is you would lay out the stipulations. Hey, this is how you're going to live as my vassal nation or people, and then this is how what you're going to do in response to that. So this section of Deuteronomy, it's a big chunk of the book. We've been in it for you know a couple of months now. Is uh, all of the way Israel is going to live as a society, and it's kind of all of these are an outflowing of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments give the overall. But then these passages that we're reading, Deuteronomy is recapping for this generation, this new generation who didn't, um, may not have been old enough to remember the covenant back in Exodus when it was given. Because remember, like 40 years or so almost have passed. So Moses is recapping. That's where we are. And, and in this section, he's going to move into these laws or these commands that he's giving. They, a lot of them have to do with uh, integrity of the family and human dignity for the poor. And you'll see him kind of alternate between those two themes. A few others, you know, holiness and and worship and things that that he's been talking about. But it's kind of like Moses is giving them, hey, in all these areas of life, this is what it looks like to live as my covenant people in the ancient Near East as a theocracy in a geographic setting known as Canaan. And so keeping that in mind then, that's the background, and these laws should be interpreted within that background because the first one is going to immediately go against the trend when it comes to ancient Near East covenants. Because what you did when you when you made a covenant with another nation, usually or a, or a sovereign, one of the things in that covenant, more times than not, was the rights of extradition. So if you had uh, refugees, escapees, runaway slaves, people who escaped from from your your uh, country, from your rule then if they escaped to the vassal that was under you, that vassal had an obligation to turn them back over to you, to extradite them. And look what God says right in Deuteronomy 23, verse 15. He's picking it up where he left off last week. It says, If a slave has taken refuge with you, do not hand him over to his master. Let him live among you wherever he likes and when whatever town he chooses. Do not oppress him. This is immediately countercultural in the world of the ancient Near East. God's saying, Israel, if any slave comes to you, don't turn him back in. Don't send him back to his master. In fact, don't even just like hide him or tolerate him. No, let him live wherever he wants to in your land. Let him live free and let him live freely where he decides. This is a massive uh, shift in thinking uh, for the ancient Near East culture. And even today, Countries around the world, you know, you can't immediately shift this from a one-to-one to a political sphere today. But what we can see is that God's heart for people who have escaped oppression and bondage is for them to be supported, 
for them to be uplifted, for them to be given uh, the freedom that they didn't have before. Because what was Israel? Israel was a nation of former slaves. So if Israel came out of, Jesus told a parable, you know, about a guy, basically if you translate it in modern dollars, there was a guy who owed a guy, you know, a, a bazillion dollars. You know, it's just ridiculous amount. And, and he was forgiven that debt, just forgave it. Then he goes out as he's leaving, being forgiven, he turns and he sees a guy that owes him like five bucks. And the guy can't pay him, and so he has him thrown in prison. And Jesus talks about how dreadful it will be for that day on that man on judgment day. And in the parable, you know, he, what Jesus is saying is, hey, if you've been forgiven, if you've experienced grace, how dare you want to deny it to other people? And so, Israel, you've experienced my liberation. You've experienced freedom. Don't you dare turn around and withhold that from others. That has a lot to say, even when we think about our own country here in America, how we started as a country, and then how we look at people who are trying to do what our ancestors did. Uh, you know, this can apply in so many situations, but, but what it does, it, it may not give us a, you know, immigration solutions or refugee policy. What it does, though, is it gives us God's heart for when we face these issues and, and the lens through which we should approach them. That's what it gives us. And so it challenges people. It challenges us. Uh, it challenged them in the ancient Near East. This is, this is crazy legislation, but that's how this section begins. He goes on then, says, No Israelite man or woman is to become a shrine prostitute. You must not bring the earnings of a female prostitute or a male prostitute into the house of the Lord your God to pay any vow, because the Lord your God detests them both. Now, NIV uh, interprets this, a female prostitute, a male prostitute, with the terms actually used, the term for, that's translated female prostitute is Kedeshah, and it refers to a, a worker, a Canaanite worker in a Canaanite setting, a ritual sex worker, or worker in a temple, a pagan, a, a Canaanite fertility clergy person. Uh, and the other word that NIV translates as male prostitute is actually the word Kelib where we get the name Caleb, and it means, uh, it's a euphemism, it means dog, literally, and it's a euphemism for Gentile, and in particular for Gentile engaging in debasive sexual acts. And so that's likely that this is referring to the male workers of the temples who would allow themselves to be uh, used sexually uh, in order to um, help, you know, we've talked about this before on the podcast, that, that all of Canaanite Religion was was intertwined with fertility. The whole thing was to get Baal and Asherah or whichever gods that you ascribed their powers to to be fertile, so that then they would bless your land with fertility. And so, sex, uh, orgiastic behaviors, decadence, excess—it was all uh, wrapped into how Canaanite worship uh, was practiced. And so, what God's saying here is. You're not going to bring the wages of that practice into my temple to pay my vows. God, God doesn't need anyone's money. God never needs money. God asks us to give money because he knows that money has such a tight grip over us. And the act of giving money away is one of the easiest ways to loose its power that it holds us over. So when God asks for our money, asks for Israelite, Israel's money, his offerings at this point, he doesn't need it. 
He's doing it because, and he'll go on to say this, I'm not just making this up off the cuff, he'll go on to say why, you know, that he doesn't need their offerings. This is for their benefit because how easily money can become an idol and how easy it is to rationalize things when you can appeal to, well, think of all the good the money could do. You know, think of how much, think of how our offerings would increase if we encourage money laundering. Gambling, drug dealing, you know, all these things, it's just very easy for the human mind to rationalize. And what God's saying is none, nothing of Canaanite uh, religious practice has any place in my worship, in the sphere of the divine. That's a hard pill uh, for a lot of people to swallow back then because they just, syncretism was the order of the day. But here, God's saying, no, you're not going to be like that. Moses is... is is equipping his people, do not be Canaanites and do not allow any vestige of Canaanite religious practice into the covenant people. And yet that's exactly what Israel ends up doing, uh, but that's far into the future. So then it's going to move to some laws that, that uh, they challenge. They challenge us today. They challenge Israel then. Verse 19, do not charge your brother interest whether on money or food or anything else that may earn interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but not a brother Israelite, so that the Lord your God may bless you in everything you put your hand to in the land you are entering to possess. A quick clarification, when it says you may charge a foreigner interest, that's not the word for the immigrant, the sojourner, the alien, uh, the one who's dwelling among Israel. The word here, I believe it's Nahri, and it, it refers to foreigners coming to do business or to travel through. or th This is referring to, say, an Egyptian trader coming in or, you know, uh, a Babylonian, uh, you know, commercial enterprise, whatever. This is referring to that. And what God's saying is, yeah, you know, you can charge interest on, on external business doings, but you're not to charge interest within the covenant people of God, within the covenant community of God. You're supposed to loan, if you have something and somebody needs it and you have enough to give them until they can pay you back, that's what you do. Uh, you don't do that, oh, and I'm going to charge you interest on top of that so I can make money off of your hardship. God abhors that. Uh, I shared today at Ruth's at the lunch, I said every time I drive by a, a check cashing place in a lower income neighborhood, I just look at it and think, God hates what you're doing. As much as he hates a strip club, a drug dealer house, you know, a meth lab, as much as he hates any of those things, he hates predatory lenders. He hates the practice of taking advantage, of using things like small print and loopholes, um, of preying on people's misfortune, getting rich off of their misfortune. He hates it. Read the prophets if you don't believe me. Uh, so if you're in that industry... <laughs> You may need to rethink what God thinks about what you're doing. Uh, I'll go ahead and tell you, you didn't like it. And so that's something that should challenge us today because a lot of our economy is built on that. But again, this is God's words to the people of God in the covenant that he made with them living in the ancient Near East. How we extrapolate from that may be different in different settings, but don't have any mistake about it. His heart is... If you're taking advantage and you are prospering off of people's misfortune, that's detestable. And that's a message that many 
people need to hear even today. They needed to hear it back then as well. So he goes on and speaking of that, you know, being honest and not taking advantage and not using things like loopholes and this and that. He also goes to say, if you make a vow, this is verse 21, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, you know, you, you, you're thankful to God so freely, this is not under compulsion, but you say, I'm going to vow whatever to the Lord, the, the first of my crops or, you know, the best of my cattle or whatever it is. If you do that, do not be slow to pay it. For the Lord your God will certainly demand it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from making the vow, you'll not be guilty. Whatever your lips utter, you must be sure to do, because you made your vow freely to the Lord your God with your own mouth. And so God's saying, you know, if you say something, if you vow to do something, I'm going to hold you to it. And it's, it's, it, it only becomes a sin because you vowed it and then you didn't do it. If you had never vowed it before, it wouldn't be a sin. And we've mentioned this, if you've been with us through the study, you know, we've talked about this back in Leviticus, but God holds people to their work. Because it's really easy at the height of emotion, you know. The church is going to do a big building campaign, so what do you do? Let's have an emotional worship service. Let's show pictures that are moving. Let's show all the work that's being done. I mean, those are all legitimate things to do. You want people to give because they see the need and they, they like what's going on. But it's very easy at the height of emotion to make vows that then you look back when things have settled down and you've had a chance to think, you're like, ooh, I don't think I can do that, or I don't want to do that. <laughs> so God's saying, he's warning against it, don't, it's better to not even make a vow to begin with, because if you do, you are bound to that in God's covenant community. So now he's going to switch to... Um, well, well, it's slightly still with the idea of, of the the integrity and what we would call of these are what we would call social justice. It has a bad word among some Christians. It shouldn't, you know. I, I people that have that that think social justice is somehow in contrast to the gospel. It's not. Social justice is just biblical gospel justice. It's the external living of God's principles in Torah and then later in the New Covenant. So don't ever, don't ever get worried when you hear social justice. Yeah, people will misuse it, and they'll attach all kinds of things that are unbiblical to it. But the concept itself is very, very biblical. So here's an example. Verse 24, if you enter your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat all the grapes you want, but do not put any in your basket. If you enter your neighbor's grain field, you may pick kernels with your hands, but you must not put a sickle to his standing grain. I love this legislation because this is this is for Israel. Um, this the, the theme, the principle in this is huge. God does something that our current society today is horrible at doing. So our and by our I mean American. I know some international listeners follow this podcast, but our current society today, right now in America, you are either on the left or you're on the right. And if you're on the right, you're supposed to be about responsibility, about property rights and individuals and working and pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and not getting handouts and not milking the system and not being, you know, all of this, these stereotypes. And if you're on the left, you're for safety nets and everybody receiving uh, the same amount and, and starting at the same place and everybody having rights to all the things that all the other people have and, and the idea of some being richer and some being poorer is just anathema and that, that it should be, um, you know, everybody should be taken care of and, and you should have to give or either government take uh, if you have a lot in order to give to the others. 
And those two sides end up becoming caricatures that people are almost forced to choose between. And whole political parties are wrapped around it. Uh, and, and it's just amazing how that mindset will condition discussions on things, um, society-wide issues and policy. But what, what Scripture does is something that so few people seem to be able to do, which is it walks that perfect balance. See, what we have here is generosity. This is, a, this is a message to someone who is in need of something, walking through. This is most likely had to do about travelers, you know, traveling through your neighbor's grain field. It's, it's not like you just walk around in, in the wilderness. I mean, this, this is, again, ancient Israel. It's a pastoral setting, and this is people traveling. This is before convenience stores. This is before uh, refrigeration. This is before, yeah, I can pack a lunch. You know, there's no meal prep. At this point, you kind of ate on a daily basis um, and, and whenever you could. And so this is saying to the people, yeah, you're free to, if you are in need, to take what you need. And that's why it says you can't, not a basket, not what you want, not to hoard, not to collect, but to take what you need at the moment as you're passing through your neighbor's field. Because God had already set it up earlier in Torah, as we've seen, where he said, you know, don't, when you're, when you're sowing and then you're reaping your harvest, uh, don't, don't collect to the edges, leave the edges, because those are for the immigrant, the widow, the orphan, the poor. You know, when you glean your field, don't go through it a second time. Whatever you missed the first time, just leave it, because that's what the poor, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, they're going to come back, come through, and that's how God's going to provide for them. So there's generosity built into this system. And, you know, people on the left in a modern society will be like, yeah, absolutely, you know, they're loving that. But it's a responsible generosity because God's recognizing that people can take advantage of generosity. People can find loopholes in the system, you know. people. If I'm able to just walk through and take a handful of grapes whenever I'm going through my neighbor's uh, vineyard, why wouldn't I bring a bucket next time? You know, it's a lot easier than having to grow my own vineyard. Well, agricultural works hard. So the temptation, the temptation is there to abuse generosity. And so through this, through the laws of gleaning, through a number of things God puts in place, there's a sense, yes, there's generosity, but it's empowering generosity. It's responsible generosity. It does require you to work. You know, you gleaned your field and then you left some. The people, the poor, they had to come, and they could come and get it, but they had to come and get it. They had to do the work. There was dignity in work. And what God expresses in this section and in what we'll look at next week is to preserving the dignity of the poor. Um, it's a balance that we don't see a lot. You know, people on the right, people on the left, they kind of just are coming at it from opposite sides. But what Scripture does is it challenges both sides. And it says, hey, no, 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 yeah, be generous, but be responsible. No taking advantage, no loopholes, no small print, no milking the system. None of that stuff is to be permitted, um, but there is to be generosity. And there is to be, if you have, lend to those who don't have. That's your responsibility because you've been given what you have by God. It's all His anyway. It's a radical shift in mindset from, from where we are today, but 
it is what it is, and Scripture challenges us no matter. So let's uh, let's continue on in chapter 24 then. Now it's going to talk about uh, moving to family integrity. And this is a very specific case. This, this verse will get brought up later in the New Testament. Jesus will actually talk about this when he's questioned about it. But this is... This is talking about, again, the Old Testament, it presupposes God is speaking into Israel, bringing them out of the pagan world where they've been in, and putting them into the midst of a new place, a geographic place, where they will be surrounded by pagan cultures. And he's saying, now, in this midst, in this time, in this setting, in this place, you're going to live differently. And even the things that are shared among all the cultures of the time, Things like slavery, although it's very different from modern chattel slavery, um, but, but was still, wasn't great. But this whole idea of the Evid, if you missed our Exodus discussion of that, go back and check it on the video on the podcast. But even things like slavery, even things like um, having, to make, you know, having to borrow money or, or take a loan or being poor. You know, God's given this, all of this legislation is presupposing that those things are still here. And so how are we going to live in spite of it? in a fallen world. And that's what a lot of Torah legislation does. That's why it's not perfect legislation for for an eternal state of affairs. You know, what what Moses is about to allow here, Jesus flat out says in the New Testament, hey, this isn't how it was always supposed to be. And it's not how it's always going to be. This is because of your hardness of heart in the meantime. And uh, let's look at the chapter and you'll see what I mean. Chapter 24 says, now this is a very specific condition that's being given. Remember, biblical was case law, was casuistic. If this, then this. It didn't lay out all possible scenarios. It gave examples. And and that's what's happening. So this is an example, and this then would would determine the outlook of Israel and their judges and how they were supposed to handle cases that were similar to this or that were extrapolated outworkings of it. If a man marries a woman who, in the NIV, says becomes displeasing to him. I, that's not a good translation. It also obscures a wordplay that's going on. Literally, it's, um, if a man marries a woman, and it is found a nakedness of thing, I believe is how the Hebrew words it. Uh, it it's a figure of speech. It's a, there's not a great way to translate in English, but it's something... Um, something indecent is going to be found. So, if a man marries a woman... And literally, it's, uh, she does, literally, how it reads is, if a man marries a woman and she does not find favor in his eyes because he finds the indecentness of a thing, there's, there's the wordplay, you know, she doesn't find favor because he finds out something she's doing. And it's something indecent, whatever it is, uh, it's something indecent. Not adultery, because we know the punishment for that would have been capital for the man and the woman. But this is something like short of that, but still pretty severe. Um, So if he finds that out, that his wife is doing something, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, sends her from his house, you would do that in the ancient Near East, you make a scroll that would be like, I am a divorced person, and then that that was the legal means by which then you could remarry uh, without somebody claiming that you were committing adultery. You were legally divorced. So he gives it to her. He sends her from his house. And if, after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man, so she remarries, and her second husband hates her, and Ivy says dislikes, but it's the Hebrew word hates, 
and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her out from his house. So the second husband has found whatever she's doing to be unacceptable, and he sends her out as well. Or if her husband, or if he dies, so or if she becomes a widow, then her first husband, who divorced her, is not allowed to marry her again after she's been defiled. And and, and being defiled is is you know, we think of that and you're like, wait, what's defiling? She got divorced and then she got remarried. Being defiled in this sense means being off limits. If you are divorced, that's it. Relationship's over in this setting, in the biblical setting, the Old Testament setting. So relationship's over. Covenant's broken. You're sent away. That relationship is done. So if you then go and marry somebody else and I sent you away, I can't have you back. I can't, you're, you're, you're off limits is a good way to think about the concept of defilement, uncleanness. If you remember the Leviticus study, we talked a lot about this. Is, is you're, If you divorce someone, they are forever off limits to you, especially if they marry somebody else. And so um, it goes on to say, that would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. So it's not, God's law here, what it's literally saying is if you divorce someone, you can't remarry them. It's final. It's done. Divorce is final, permanent. And this is interesting um, to us because we're like, wait, what's the big deal? We're Christians. We're supposed to be about reconciliation. Like we celebrate if somebody you know, gets divorced, but then they work it out and get back together. And it's because we live in a no-fault divorce culture, but it, it didn't work that way in the ancient Near East. So, you know, marriage was, was creating a new family, and then the breaking of that covenant bond was severe. And so what God's saying is, so if you decide that you are going to send them away, if you are going to get a divorce, which was happening at the time, people got divorces, we have the laws from the other ancient Near East cultures. What God's saying is, if you're going to do it, know that it is permanent. Know that you cannot, in the heat of the moment, you're having an argument, I threaten to divorce you, or, you know, I'm going to send you away, and, and, and I'm just, I'm done with you, uh, you know. God's saying, this is, a, this is a lifetime decision, and if a marriage ends, it's done. So what this does, culturally at least, at that point, this would make people very reticent about giving divorces. It would, make it, it would make it not an easy thing. It was not a no-fault divorce culture. Uh, there was fault. There had to be fault in divorce. Irreconcilable differences wasn't a thing in the Old Testament and uh, possibly well, in the New Testament as well because Jesus talks about divorce. And he does give, there are times, there are exceptions. But, um, but what does this say to us? You know, Well, honestly, this doesn't say a lot to our current divorce culture in a one-to-one fashion. In other words, you can't look at this and say, so should we, if I want to get back with my ex, you know, I wasn't a Christian then, we had issues, we've resolved it, we want to reconcile, the Bible's all about reconciliation. Um, is this preventing a new covenant couple from getting back together? I, I would say it's not, because this is part of Israel's covenant stipulations, and we know that this divorce was even given because of their hardness of heart, and to curb societal practices that were rampant in the ancient Near East. And so, so there's that that has to be factored in. What this does show us, what this should communicate to us, and whether you're divorced or not, 
is that divorce is, is something that God never intended, doesn't like it, and that it is a life-altering thing. And, and sometimes it's a deeply scarring thing, even, even in the best of circumstances. Um, so, we, you know, we can't jump to start talking about modern divorce from this passage, because there's a lot more the Bible says about divorce that we have to factor into. And, and so that's important to realize. We do that in the Bible for the rest of us. I mean, in the Disciple Dojo course called To Know and Be Known, Forming a Thoughtful Christian Sexual Ethic. The first two or three sessions we spend talking about marriage and divorce in the Bible and what Jesus has to say about it and how it's presented in Scripture. And even in the Old Testament, it's not a static concept because we look at this and go, okay, well, this is how God feels about divorce. The prophets later will actually use this concept to, to, to hammer home their message of God's grace. You know, Hosea is told to marry a wife, and then she's an adulterous wife. She's a wife of prostitutions, as the uh, Hebrew literally says. And he sends her away, and then he's told to take her back. Actually, she goes away, and he's then told to take her back. So it's a picture of God's grace, even though there should never have been that receiving of her back. Or in Isaiah, I believe Isaiah chapter 50, Isaiah talks about God uh, punishing Israel and and, and almost like to preserve this hope, he's telling Israel, yes, I've, I've sent you away, I'm, I'm going to punish you, I'm going to judge you because of your breaking the covenant, but have I given you a certificate of divorce? And, and it's kind of a rhetorical question, meaning, no, the relationship's not over. And so pleading with Israel to turn back to the covenant. But then later, Jeremiah, Israel won't hear the message. They won't heed it. And so there will come a time in Jeremiah where God actually flat out says, I am divorcing you. And it's chapters 3 and 4 in Jeremiah. I am divorcing you. It's over. I'm done. And that would have communicated to the people, God's left us forever. The relationship is over completely. But yet in Jeremiah... It's, it's mind-boggling. God says, but if you turn, I'll take you back. In other words, God will do for Israel as a nation what he did not allow them to do one-on-one. -on -one. It, it, it's, it's such a scandalous concept, but it's scandalous towards the side of grace. God's saying, my grace even exceeds and overrides uh, what I've laid down in this point in your nation's history as a law. In other words, what's to be the normal practice? I will go beyond that to my own shame to take you back if you turn to me. So there's, there's a lot that Scripture, it's not as simple. Of, be aware of people that proof text. It's not as simple as finding a passage, pointing to it, and go, oh, that's what the Bible says. No, you've got to follow the whole trajectory of Scripture, the redemptive arc. See where it's going. See how later passages pick up and, and uh, modify or add on or qualify these passages that we're reading in Deuteronomy. Because what we're reading in Deuteronomy, again, how Israel is going to live in their infancy as a nation in the land of Canaan, among the Canaanites. But even as we don't keep all of those laws in a one-to-one -one setting because we're not under that covenant as Christians, what we do is we see those laws and we see the principles that they teach and then we see, oh, that same God is who I'm in relationship with today. And he hasn't changed in terms of how he feels, in terms of the principles. The settings, the, the way this outflows in society may change, uh, but the principles that this law contains are still very much valid and binding. And so we see, and we come to know the heart of God 
the more we study his law, even though it's not law that we actually keep today as it was written, uh, but it's the same lawgiver. And so through the lens of the New Testament, um, we're able to see how these laws, and next week we'll see a specific example once again, how these laws, even these laws to ancient Israel, speak to Christians today uh, in the kingdom of God, which knows no boundaries, which has no flags, and which has no earthly citizenship, um, but, it, but, but permeates all of creation. Uh, these laws, even then, have something to say to us. But we're out of time. So, again, sorry for this format. It was so much better today, uh, teaching it live. Uh, but this is what happens when the guy teaching it is not tech savvy and makes a bonehead error. So I hope you enjoyed it, and we'll see you next week.